Welcome to Action Stations, a climate emergency podcast where we try to figure out how to mourn global ecological catastrophe and how to take meaningful action. Have you ever been drawn into a compelling podcast and thought afterwards, I wish I had someone to talk this through with? Or have you got to the end of a podcast and thought, I need to go back over this and take some notes? Well, both of these things happened to me last year. My friend, David Benjamin Blower, put together an epic one-hour, 45-minute podcast called Everybody Now. It's a sober call to action. And afterwards, I felt like this is way too important just to listen to once. What should I do? So this podcast is a response. It's got two distinct sections. First, we'll listen together to an excerpt from Everybody Now. Then secondly, we'll reflect on its themes as well as asking ourselves, what should we be doing in response? It is called Action Stations after all. Let's listen to a third excerpt from Everybody Now, entitled Pandemic, Fossil Fuel Usage, and Changing Our Behavior. Afterwards, myself and activist Damien Hersey will discuss COP26 and what its legacy might be. I'm a freelance academic. I have an honorary position at Glasgow University. Um, I am an activist. Many, my work is best known for land reform and various environmental campaigns, uh, also urban poverty and matters to do with human ecology as well as natural ecology. Alistair McIntosh calling in from Glasgow during lockdown. Issues of climate change and how we appraise the science of climate change have been very much on my mind, and you know, I've used the lockdown usefully to complete that work. I'm noticing a much greater propensity to anger, to flashpoint-type stuff, and I think it's a combination of the actual effects of being in lockdown and you know, folk starting to go a bit, get, get a bit rattled by it, and the whole constellation of circumstances of our time, of which the virus obviously is one element, but by no means the only element, and in the longer term, a relatively small element compared with climate change. Pandemics go right back in our history. You know, the earliest annals, whether from China or the annals of the Celtic monks and so on, talk of repeated great plagues coming upon the world. Archaeologists will tell you that when you find a deserted medieval village or signs thereof, usually it's been a plague that has been behind the cause of it being deserted. Trends in human behaviour very much increase the likelihood of pandemics. The World Health Organization since 1990s has had on its pandemic section of its website a warning that pandemics are likely to happen in the future. It's not a question of if, but when, and that when they do come, they could kill millions. The Spanish flu of 1918-1919 killed between 20 and 40 million. The coronavirus as of yesterday had killed 400,000 people worldwide. And this is in a world where we have 
far more advanced medical support facilities than we had back then at the time of the ending of the First World War. So yes, pandemics are likely to keep on coming, to keep on hitting us. And in the case of the coronavirus, I think we can see very clearly how modern living and particularly fossil fuel-driven living are key drivers in what is happening because fossil fuels have enabled us to live with very intense population density. So when you've got a lot of people close together, you've got a considerable pool for infections to spread, combined with the fact that that mandates things like factory farming and the intensive factory farming of animals could well be a factor in this coronavirus. And then the third factor is that fossil fuels enable rapid transportation around the world. So, you know, it's thought that the reason there was so much of it in northern Italy was that they had close trading links with Wuhan province. So the virus was maybe brought back there and got a foothold early on. That's only made possible because we can jump on a plane and be across the world tomorrow carrying the virus with us in ways that in the past would be a very much slower process. And what the IPCC report on climate change in the land says, the one that came out last year, is that it says that it's a combination of changing land use, partly driven by climate change, that can cause human beings to encroach into wildlife areas. Basically, you know, if you're a bit short on food, then you go poaching for wild animals or what have you. And when you bring those back into the human food chain, there is a higher risk of epidemics and possibly pandemics breaking out. So a threat multiplier is something which you can't directly lay a finger on, but it is likely to increase other forms of threat, whether threats of agricultural failure, threats of conflict, or threats of pandemics breaking out. I think that the, you know, the pause, as I heard a friend of mine call it the other day, the way in which we've all had to go on slow, uh, we've been laid off our work and all the rest of it. The pause has led to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. At the peak of it in China, I saw one statistic that said that the CO2 emissions had reduced by 25%. But, you know, still churning out 75%. Most of the factories kept going. Most of the agriculture kept going and so on. Um, aviation, although we, we focus on it a lot, is responsible for only something like 2% of emissions. So simply stopping the planes in itself has not led to a dramatic drop in CO2 emissions. So the CO2 is still building up. And the concern that I have is that, you know, what are we seeing? But as soon as it starts biting, you get President Trump in America saying that he's going to relax environmental regulations on corporations to make it easier for them to compete again. You have the Chinese advertising cars to try and get the car economy going. And here in Britain, Boris Johnson doing the same thing with reopening not just garden centers first, but also car sales rooms first. So my concern is that 
we've seen a little bit of what can be done, but there is huge counterpoint pressure to bring back consumerism as usual with all the emissions that that will entail. The theologian Hannah Malcolm calling in from lockdown. I guess it's three months now for us. My husband and I have been in lockdown in uh, Mossside in Manchester where we live. Um, and my husband um, is more vulnerable, so um, we have to um, abide by stricter social distancing rules. Um, and I think one of the um, one of the real challenges that it's brought home for me, as someone who um, has to manage my own um, chronic mental health condition, um, and who also relies quite heavily on um, being outside being amongst other creatures um, in order to manage my well-being um, has been um, a reminder of just how uneven um, access to other creatures, access to the living world is um, for people in our country. Losses of green space, losses of other creatures, um, the loss of the living world has been much more keenly felt in lower-income neighbourhoods and communities. Um, and something like how much um, local park, how much green space per person in a neighbourhood is a really telling um, measure of the uneven ways that we treat each other. Historically, we've made this theological distinction between um, natural evil and moral evil, which has been our way of dealing with um, the fact that um, some kinds of bad things that happen in the world, we can say, well, that was the direct um, result of human sinfulness and other bad things that happen um, seem to be part of, you know, being in an, in systems of violence more generally. So a natural evil might be something like an earthquake that kills people. Moral evil is a person that goes out and kills people. Um, one of the consequences of climate breakdown has been that the lines between moral and natural evil have become really blurred. Um, so we know that this virus is a consequence of our simple relationships to other creatures. Um, lots of people have made the connection that environmental destruction makes viruses jumping from animals more likely. Um, and then also, <clears throat> as climate breakdown continues, we're going to see more and more of these kinds of events. So um, things like SARS, bird flu, um, and coronavirus. Those kinds of um, epidemics and pandemics are going to become more and more frequent um, and wrapped up in that um, that kind of blurring of those lines um, between what we've maybe traditionally considered human spaces and non-human spaces is that, you know, that's the result, that blurring partly of um, our prioritisation of our current economic models over everything else. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that the two are kind of inextricably linked I think this is a moment of, um, you know, it's a, it's a revelatory moment where we um, have a glimpse of our, of our, both our capacity and our willingness um, for responding to um, global destructive events. One of the things people have said um, about coronavirus, um, you know, has been that 
it, it's demonstrated that we are capable of, of quite rapid and far-reaching change. Um, our emissions um, globally um, have dropped by 17% since lockdown began. Um, and that, I mean, that's really not very much, given that we need to re reach a kind of net zero state. But it's also worth bearing in mind that really nothing actually has changed. Um, we haven't really changed our, our habits. Um, we haven't really changed the way we consume things. We haven't we haven't really changed our energy systems, um, and our economic system um, has changed slightly, but but not really. I suppose the thing that I found quite difficult to hear um, in people's comparisons between something like this um, pandemic and our wider um, climate and ecological collapse has been, um, you know people saying things like, oh, nature's healing itself, um, or uh, humans with a virus after all, because of stories like um, cleaner air, um, you know, animals returning to cities, that kind of thing. <clears throat> or, you know, nature is, um, nature sent us to our rooms to think about what we've done. Um, and one of the ways that we can talk maybe with more clarity about the relationship between um, something like a pandemic of this scale and learning how to change our behavior um, is that we can make distinctions between changes in activity and um, the human beings involved in them. So um, people have said things like, oh, well, there's fewer people on the road and so the air is cleaner. Um, well, that's not true. What it is is there's fewer cars on the road that have made the air cleaner. Um, and that kind of distinction might seem really small, but it challenges that that underlying um, current in our thought that human life should be seen as at best separate from and at worst the enemy of other creatures. That shift in, in the way we imagine our relationship to the world around us, I think will create the space for us to do the creative and transformative work we need to do. We can't imagine that it's a binary of choosing between human flourishing and the flourishing of the living world. Today, my guest is Damien. Introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you're up to. My name is Damien Hersey, and uh, I'm a postgraduate researcher. But I'm also very involved as um, an activist in various capacities, and that's included quite a lot of um, uh, environmental activism as well. In uh, 1989, I can remember this... Um, kind of upswelling of environmental awareness and consciousness and it was on TV and people were talking about the greenhouse effect uh, as it was called then then it kind of you know, kind of all went away I was thinking over you know the last 30 years really every so often I think this seems like a really big problem this the fact the earth's heating up and there's going to be uh, famines and there's going to be uh, starvation and there's going to be bad effects on the, particularly the poor countries in the world. But no one seems to be doing anything about it. And I'd, you know, attend the odd rally and I'd, uh, I'd go to the odd talk and I'd even make talks about it in church and I'd try to organise a weekend about it one time. But it was really hard to get people to engage with the issue of the environment and climate change in particular. Well, it's a pleasure that we can have this conversation. Alistair McIntosh and Hannah... Malcolm have both 
said stuff that's fairly sobering, but at the same time, find quite enlightening and motivational. What emotion do you mainly feel at the moment when it comes to activism? Is it one of hope? Is it one of uh, gritting your teeth? Is it frustration? Is it anger? I'd say it's uh, optimism tempered by realism. And I think I know what uh, sort of Alistair is referring to a a little bit. And I know he's spoken a bit about the tendency of um, some environmental groups to perhaps exaggerate the urgency of the threat. That's not to um, say it's not urgent because because it is. But what can happen is we can flip from a state of denial about the climate crisis. And there's a lot of uh, denial up until recently that were promoted by dubious actors, which might have included Russia and troll bots and all those, those sorts of things. And it's recently become clear, I'm reading this book by a guy called Michael E. Mann on the new climate war, that um, in a way, doomism is the new new denialism, uh, because it's been recognised now by uh, those who'd be opposed to taking action on climate that uh, denialism is not really viable anymore because of the consequences we're seeing in the world such as the terrible fires in Australia and the, the famine in, in Madagascar. Really what uh, the oil companies want is to delay action as, as long as possible because of the huge amounts of um, assets that are involved and oil that's st- still uh, able to be exploited. They're, they're quite keen to make it seem actually now that the, the situation is, is worse uh, than, than it actually is. There are sections in the environmental movement that um, have a tendency that, that way anyway because it doesn't seem like we are moving fast enough to get to 1.5 degrees. In terms of what Michael Mann's saying in the in the book, we, both, we have both urgency, an urgent situation, and we have an agency as well alongside that. So we can, we can act, um, and even if we can't keep temperature rise under 1.5 degrees, which came from the Paris Agreement, we can keep it under 2 degrees, and every 1 degree fraction of a degree is um, is worth trying to keep under. Now, one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to um, invite you to, to, to share is that you uh, were at COP26. So what led you to going to COP26? I read in a book by David Wallace Wells uh, in about 2018 called The Uninhabitable Earth that in the 30 years since the end of the 80s, there's been as much CO2 released into the atmosphere as the rest of recorded history. Wow. So that's half of all CO2 in the atmosphere has been released since that, that time when there was that sort of environmental awareness and it just kind of went away. When I realised that, I just felt an immense sense of kind of guilt and thinking, well, couldn't I have done more? And so it was, it was those sorts of feelings uh, that um, motivated me to want to go to COP26. Okay, so talk about what happened at COP26 from your perspective. What was good and what maybe was not so good? I went up there as part of something called the um, Camino to COP. Uh, it, was, it was basically a pilgrimage from London and other parts of the UK to Glasgow. Uh, 
and it was 56 day walk and I was also traveling with something called the coat of hopes which was a uh, patchwork coat made of different patches that came from all across the UK and when up in uh, Glasgow this was around on the streets and it was outside the gates of the blue zone which was the main uh, negotiating area uh, which ordinary people weren't allowed into and it was a kind of symbol of lots of different people's feelings about uh, the climate crisis embodied in this very beautiful ornate coat and there was a song that went with it so I was involved in that doing a daily procession up to the gates of the blue zone uh, with the coat of hopes and it was just a very uh, exciting and inspiring to see uh, how uplifted people were by putting on the coat and having this song uh, sung over them. In the green zone, which was the area for the general public that was open, showing lots of different exhibits, there was a drama we did about the Camino to Cop. And I attended lots of uh, rallies uh, with um, XR and things like that. The general impression was of lots of energy and excitement in the sort of fringe festival, in the, all the activities around COP26. Um, but in the actual negotiating hall, and there's a lot of sense of disappointment, pessimism. In particular, there was a lot of frustration on the part of delegates that had come from the majority world. They were finding it really hard to access the venue itself, partly because of COVID and the COVID restrictions were still uh, very much in force in Scotland at that time. But also it just felt like there was a lack of hospitality really, making it really hard for uh, delegates who'd come you know, across the world to Glasgow to access the um, main negotiating floor. Now, it's been a little while since COP26, and the question is, what do you think will be the legacy of COP26? The legacy for the actual negotiation itself will be one of disappointment and, and failure. But on the other hand, yeah, there's this, this vibrancy and energy from the community outside, which gives me a, a, a sense of hope. So if I, funnily, funnily enough, if I'd have just watched it on TV, I'd probably be a lot more depressed about it than I am because I actually went there and saw uh, everything that was going on and experienced it and experienced the, the grassroots energy really um, behind this movement for change, which is, it, it, which is moving across the world, I think. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with Extinction Rebellion? I remember when it, it first came out, I think that was April 2019, basically the Easter uprising, I think they called it. And it was on, it was on TV. And at the same time, there was uh, this uh, David Attenborough documentary, wasn't there? And that was like, oh, wow, suddenly it was, you know, front page news for the first time in a very long time. And I was uh, actually on holiday in um, Portugal at the time, <laughs> having flown there and feeling slightly guilty about that. And oh, part of me was like, oh, I really wish I was there because I I feel like I want to be part of this. I feel like I, you know, should be getting involved in raising awareness of this issue. And yeah, being disruptive, if you want to call it that. And so then during the, um, I think it was the October rebellion, uh, I did decide, well, I'm just going to go down. And I went down on my own and uh, ended up 
there for about three days, uh, doing various things, doing marches. Um, I didn't have anywhere to sleep, but um, I found accommodation in Bethnal Green, sleeping on the floor of a shelter, which had all been arranged. And a lot of community and a lot of um, acceptance, a lot of inspiration, really. The problem we're seeing over and over again is people feeling either, in, unless I had loads of excess time, I can't make a difference because I can't go to some sort of yeah. event or I don't have choices in my life, so I can't really do these other things. So some people just feel this kind of weight of guilt, but it doesn't have to be that way, does it? What do you think people can practically be doing to make a difference? Well, I don't think guilt is particularly helpful as a sort of long-term way of motivating people. Feeling guilty can help you sort of see a situation that needs needs tackling, but just feeling guilty all the time and not doing anything is is not very not very healthy. I think we all need to do what we feel we can do um, and not what we feel we can't do. I mean, if that sounds a bit of a cliche, what I mean by that is that We've all got natural inclinations and natural talents and natural abilities. We've all got different resources. So for some people, that's time. I'm lucky in that I've got quite a lot of flexibility with my time. So I choose to do things like attend COP26. But other people don't have time. So they might want to write letters. They might want to sign petitions. They might want to cut down on their, their meat eating. They might want to cycle rather than drive. So I think the thing to think about is, well, what, what are my natural abilities? Where, where is it I can have the most impact? Excellent. Whoa, that was a heavy conversation. I want to thank Damien once again for sharing some of his activist journey with us his thoughts and for his dogged determination to shine light on these big climate issues. What about you? Did anything strike you? If you're feeling inspired, make a little action plan. We've actually provided a downloadable, printable, eco action plan in the description. Doesn't matter how old or young you are, we can all do something practical. In the description, there's also a link to an Earth Day bingo chart with actions that might help you with your action plan. So, action stations, everybody. Let's reconvene soon. Bye for now. <laughs>